Hey, this is Sean Colvin, and you're listening to Everything Fab 4 on Salon.com. Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. My friend Harry and I pulled our resources and went and we got Sergeant Pepper, and I remember tearing into it that was like amazing because it was like music but it was also this sort of world i remember just staring at the cover just you know for hours just you know thinking about who all these people might be and and finding you know the little easter eggs that were in there and and then of course listening to it i mean we just put it on just listen to it again and again and again and again and again Today's guests are the Bacon Brothers, including younger brother and veteran actor Kevin and his older sibling Michael, an award-winning composer. Kevin's films include the musical drama Footloose, the historical conspiracy thriller JFK, the legal drama A Few Good Men, the historical docudrama Apollo 13, the mystery drama Mystic River, and numerous others. He is equally prolific on television, having starred in the Fox drama series The Following. He has long been associated with the concept of interconnectedness, having been popularized by the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. In 2007, he created SixDegrees.org, a charitable foundation. His brother Michael has enjoyed a long and celebrated career as an accomplished guitarist, keyboardist, and cellist. Over the years, Michael has composed hundreds of soundtracks, including the score for the PBS miniseries The Jewish Americans. He is a music professor at Lehman College. Since the late 1990s, he has performed with Brother Kevin in a duo called The Bacon Brothers. With several albums to their credit, The Bacon Brothers are preparing to undertake a new tour in support of their latest music. Welcome, Kevin and Michael Bacon. I find it fascinating, like my, myself and my own brother, Andy, who is seven years younger than me, you guys have an interesting um, division between your ages. Does that have any impact about how you first discovered music and how music came into your life at these, these different moments in time? I would say for sure. Um, you know, when you look at the, the history of music, um, that time period, uh, to, in, in these days doesn't seem like that big a gap musically, but back then it was a, a huge gap. And, um, uh, you know, I, the music that my brother, uh, and I only know this because of him, you know, because we do interviews together, but the music that he kind of came up with and that was shared with him by my parents was a lot different than the music that I, I was listening to. Um, 
and also the other piece of it is that, so I'm the youngest of six. Uh, uh, there's a big gap, but there's a lot of, you know, girls hanging around in there. And, and, uh, they, they all had, um, their own, you know, kind of musical things that they were listening to on the radio or the records that they were bringing home or, or more importantly, the music that they were playing. And my sister was in a band with my brother and, um, and so as a little kid, I was able to hear not only the music they were playing, but also the music that they were bringing home. And so I got exposed to, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, popular music, you know, non-classical music uh, at a really early age. So it was very, very uh, important to me. So you were almost in the more privileged position then, in a way. Michael over here is the pioneer, and you're sort of benefiting from everything. I really was, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Michael, so what were your early earliest memories then, um, I, I suppose, in the 1950s of, of music and, and getting that spark that is still with you today? Yeah, well, just to pick up on what Kevin said about our four sisters, um, they were Bobby Soxers and uh, American Bandstand. Uh, I was, you know, too young for that, but um, and Elvis, all those things. And they had, you know, 45 stacked up, you know, 20, 45 on top of each other, one of those goofy little stacks of wax. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's funny. I have, the, I have a, a, a T-shirt that has an old 45 RPM adapter on it. And uh, sometimes I'll wear it to, to my class and, and, pull open my shirt and there's this thing. And I say, do you guys know what this is? And they have no idea what it is, but it's one thing to talk about. But for me, um, I think that my history in music was, and, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the Beatles because I know we'd be talking is that I loved instruments. I just, um, I can remember when my mother, our mother bought me my first cello when I was about seven or eight years old. It was, uh, I remember room I was in. I remember what, light was coming through. I remember the smell of the, the lacquer and the polish on the cello. And it was almost like a, um, uh, an extraterrestrial being that came into my life. Um, and I was never that great at the cello because I never practiced like most kids. But then I discovered the banjo and the guitar and my sister was taking guitar lessons and ukulele, ukulele and we had a jug band together, which we actually invented some instruments in that. So the, um, you know, my my connection with the Beatles was, uh, I, I particularly was thinking about Rubber Soul just because of all these instruments that they were using that w- had never been used before, about how you could use a sitar in a pop song, that sort of thing. Um, but I was pretty much a folky uh, until um, until the Beatles. And then, you know, my musical life completely changed around. Uh, and all I wanted to do was have an electric guitar. Our mother would not allow me to have an electric guitar. And my drum set, I had to do on the layaway program, $2 a week until I could actually take it out of the store. And <laughs> my mother never said, oh, that's fine. I'll just pay it off for you and you can have your drums. No, it didn't happen. But I finally did get them. And um, I loved drums. I loved percussion. I loved the, all the folk instruments. And then electric guitar was just um, the greatest thing in the world. And when I went, to, went away to college at a very young age, I was 16. First thing I did was uh, join a rock band and start playing electric guitar. <laughs> now, what was this embargo on the electric guitar about? Was it the noise or... <laughs> uh, you'd have to know my mother. 
our mother. Uh, she was a Victorian, and um, to her, electric guitars were kind of trashy and loud and rock and roll and hoodlums. And I think that's what her problem was with. And she wanted me to be more of a classical player and folk player. She played the mandolin. So I think that, that she drew the, drew the line at, um, at electrified instruments. Sure. I mean, but when you think about it, you know, so did everybody at the Newport Folk Festival, you know, it's, it, it's not, it's, it's not that, it's not that strange a notion back then, you know, electric, electric instruments represented something very, very different, you know, to some people or very threatening. Let's put it that way. So were you guys then together on February 9th, 1964 with your sisters watching the Sullivan show? Probably. You know, yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of remember it. You know, I think I would be six. Um, so, you know, I know that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, because you would have a better memory of this, but I know that we didn't, the, t- the television was in the basement, right? Uh, yeah, I think it traveled around. And there's another thing my parents hated. Yeah, television. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. even surprised we even had a television in 1964. I suppose we did. Yeah, probably was in the basement. Moved down it was a piece of shit, though, I can tell you that. There's no... Yeah, it was a tinfoil on the antenna, all this, all that. That sounds familiar with our television set during that period, too. Um, So you don't necessarily, I mean, do you, Michael? Do you have Sullivan Show memories? Or what was the Beatles discovery like in in the space of that household where maybe electrified instruments and TV are not that welcome? Well, I was, um, I think I was sort of overwhelmed by it. Um, I think the thing that first affected me about the Beatles is their talent seemed so far out of reach. First of all, all three of them are tenors. Paul's an Irish tenor and I was a baritone and it just, it it just wasn't, it seemed so far beyond what at that time in my life I could uh, emulate um, that I I didn't feel a really strong musical connection. I mean, I loved the music, but it it just was kind of outside of my range. Um, So I think that was my first impression, but certainly the, you know, the haircuts and the goofy suits, um, all this was, you know, the, we didn't really know anything about the English. I'd been over, I traveled to England uh, at least once before. Um, or maybe I hadn't actually, I think I went to England in 66, but we didn't really know much about the culture. All we knew that the, the English kids were very trendy and we would hear about the the mods and the rockers going down to Brighton beach and fighting. And that was a very different kind of a, it was almost like um, the English kids were all about fashion and growing up in the middle of Philadelphia, it was more about danger and conflict. You know, you went walking in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time. You could, you could get yourself in trouble. So I think the, um, I guess the, the, the English experience was it for American kids was, um, sort of innocent compared to what, um, my family was, was, uh, confronted with. And, you know, when my parents moved in the middle of our parents moved in the middle of Philadelphia in 48. So I guess, um, um, I think just, going a little bit on that, that when the Rolling Stones came in, I felt, or the animals were, I felt they were a little bit more lined up in what I actually could do, whereas the Beatles always seemed to be so far above that, and really always were. 
it's interesting, and some might even argue today they're still they exist on this other sort of plane. Uh, I, I love the animals reference because, of course, um, like our friend Bruce Springsteen here on the shore, uh, his mantra was "We got to get out of this place." So that spoke to him, right? And I guess in a similar way, did you both were you able to? Um, even under the, the context you just described, were you able to sort of follow the Beatles as they developed from, you know, you mentioned Rubber Soul, which is a leap forward, and then Revolver, which is another leap, and Sgt. Pepper and the White Album and Abbey Road, all of these benchmarks. Um, were you cognizant of that in those formative years? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that once, once I feel like once, I got kind of hit to the Beatles. Like that was it. Um, you know, I was too little to, to buy records. So I was kind of reliant on, um, my brothers and sisters to, to have records around the house, but most of them were on their way to moving out of the house. By the time I was about seven, uh, we have a tradition in this, in our family, it's not really a tradition, but what's, everyone leaves pretty young. I think pretty much all of my siblings were, were uh, had gone to college or had left by the time I was about seven. You know, so so. Um, but I had a, a, a transistor, you know, AM radio that um, I think maybe one of my sisters had left or something like that, and listened to. WIBG and WFIL and, and both stations were, were playing the Beatles um, a lot. And, uh, and, and yeah, so, so I think the first record that I ever bought was, was Sergeant Pepper's. Um, my father would, you know, he'd go into his um, closet and change, uh, you know, his clothes at the end of the day, you know, take his suit off and all the change would fall out of his pockets. So when he wasn't looking, I would go up and take the change um, from his closet. And, uh, and then my friend Harry and I kind of pulled our resources and went and got um, Sergeant Peppers. And I remember tearing into it. Uh, and and then, correct me if I'm wrong. It, it came with like, like, cutouts and stuff like that there was all this stuff that you could you could get from it um right. the mustache and the patch. yeah mustache yeah yeah and what was the other thing and there was a patch a patch <laughs> you could wear yeah, yeah but the yeah. mustache of course was the big uh, accessory right so of course as a little kid that was like amazing because it was like music but it was also this sort of world and the toy and i remember just staring at the cover just you know for hours just you know thinking about who all these people might be and, and finding, you know, the little Easter eggs that were in there. And, um, and then of course, listening to it. I mean, we just put it on and just listen to it again and again and again and again and again. Now, is that happening with you off at college, Michael, at the same time and in, in, in that university context? Well, um, I, I, I was looking just in the off chance we were going to, there was going to be video, but I, when there's a, picture of me and my college band, which is called, was called Peter and the Wolves. And we were all mod Carnaby garb, Carnaby ops, we called it. And, um, we were just English. We, that's all we wanted to do was be English. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were 
with covers of English bands. But one thing I was going back a little before uh, I graduated from high school in 65 and went to college in 65. And um, the kids in my rough and tumble public high school did not listen to the Beatles. They were not interested. They only listened to soul music. So um, as a Beatles fan and, and more of a folky, I was very much at odds with the taste, the musical taste of these these kids in, you know, like 1964, 1965. So um, I'm sure they came around, but there was definitely for the rough rough and tumble kids in Philadelphia, they were not into the English invasion whatsoever. Right. That's interesting. You, we had uh, John Ho- John Oates was on the program a couple of years ago, and he said something very similar that he was deeply resistant uh, to the Beatles, and that in Philly, uh, especially in those days, right, we were more regional in terms of what would be a hit in one part of the country. And he said there was a deep resistance to this to the Beatles coming along and and sort of borrowing from their sound. Yeah, and John and I came up in Philadelphia. We're I'm pretty much the same age, and, I, and that's that's what was going on. Um, you know, you I think the Beatles they were felt they were a little bit fey, and they weren't you know badass enough. Um, and you know, I, I jumped right into it. I didn't care. I just really you know, it was I was done. Yeah, well, once you heard those gurgling guitars, right, Kevin, on Sgt. Pepper or what, what we get with the White Album, they're kind of, they're pretty badass, I would say. Yeah, I mean, they ended up being, have, you know, making, I have a great, not great, I have, I have a playlist that, that I, I really like the, just for myself, which is, you know, just the hardest Beatles stuff that there is, which, you know, didn't really start happening till later. But, you know, some of it is is, is pretty, pretty hard. I mean, when you, when you think about, you know, everyone likes to kind of, uh, talk about what the, what the roots of metal are, but, you know, I I mean, Helter Skelter and the Hey Bulldog and, you know, there's, there's songs that definitely have a, a lot of, a lot of edge to them. Um, and not just lyrical edge, you know, like driving kind of, hard, hard sounds for that time. And, and I, yeah, I loved it. I mean, I was, I was all in. Yeah. Your blues and happiness. Your blues. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, that is some edgy metallic sound that they're, they're pulling together. There's no doubt about it. Um, so um, when did you begin uh, composing uh, Michael? Was, were you writing songs, I guess, by the time you're in the Peter and the Wolves? Yeah, I'd written, I started, I guess, in high school, maybe I was 15 or 16 and, um, our sister and I had a jug band. And I think maybe I wrote a song for that, but, um, I think that the, you know, the songwriting part was pretty much inspired by the Beatles because when I was first, um, you know, met them, met them, I was exposed to their music. Um, they were doing a lot of covers. I didn't quite get the the songwriting part of it, but once like Rubber Soul came around, th- then all of a sudden these guys are not only wonderful singers arrangers, they're also fantastic songwriters. So um, by the time I was in Peter and the Wolves, we were doing all covers, but um, my real love was the acoustic guitar and, and writing songs. And uh, pretty much from probably 1963, I've never stopped writing songs. 
Well, and is the songwriting, I've, I've been meaning to ask a, a one who composes in different genres, is, is the way you sit down to write a song when you're composing a soundtrack, is, is that starting point, is that point of departure similar or different than when you guys are working on a new tune uh, for a Bacon Brothers release? Is that a similar process or do they exist in different solar systems? Well, for me, composition is uh, completely different than songwriting. And one of the things that is interesting about the Beatles, and this may be somewhat controversial, but my impression of the Beatles when I hear their songs, I don't connect to a personal experience. Whereas the James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, singer-songwriter kind of people you tend to, um, they write sort of about little movies in their own lives. And like I, going back to uh, rubber soul, the one that I that really think is, is um, contradicts that is um, John's song, um, uh, Norwegian wood. And in that song, I really felt there was this girl and there was John and he's talking about that very, very specific thing. Um, but most of their songs really aren't. They're really more kind of pop songs that feel kind of more um, non-subjective, uh, that you don't, you don't get pulled into, wow, what happened to, with Paul on that day? What happened to John, George, Ringo, whatever? What, what is the experience they're writing about? So um, that's a little bit tangential, but I'm, I'm curious what your listeners would think about uh, that assessment because I've been a uh, staff songwriter where they, I was paid a salary to go and write songs. Kevin and I, um, when we first started, we were writing songs for Get Rich Quick schemes, and then later we're trying to write songs for his movies. Um, but I think that um, where I ended up was much more of what I call a confessional songwriter, where I'm just kind of waiting for that mood, that elusive kind of state of mind where you feel something fairly strongly about your own life. And then somehow it starts to morph into a song that, that has enough energy to go through to three or four minutes. We'll be back with more from the Bacon Brothers after these messages. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We're back with the Bacon Brothers on Everything Fab Four. I think our audience will definitely connect with that Um that question or that that challenging way of thinking about the Beatles and, and composition in class, I often draw a distinction um, between, as you suggested, the confessional writing, the personal writing of the singer songwriter period and the lion's share of Beatles songs, which feel more like impressions to me as opposed to confessions. They feel almost impressionistic, Strawberry Fields, Penny Lane. Yeah, you know. it's a good way to put it. Uh, what about you, Kevin? When did when did songwriting begin for you? Was it did, did it help that everybody was out of the household and you've sort of ruled the roost? 
Well, I mean, I guess I was formed as a songwriter by listening when I was a little kid to my brother composing songs. I mean, when, uh, you know, pretty, he kind of came back to Philadelphia, you know, a few years later, wasn't living at the house, but was, you know, living around that I would sort of hear, you know, him putting songs together. Um, and I didn't have an instrument at the time. I had a, I had a drum kit in the basement, which I would play and I played, um, uh, percussion, but I didn't, I didn't, play a um you know a, a chordal kind of instrument so if the first songs that i wrote uh were lyrics and music but the music was all just in my head i would just walk around and sing them to myself i had no idea what key they were in or what the changes were and that kind of stuff and then i just started singing them to my brother who would then form them into actual uh, uh songs and um, then, you know, he eventually got me a guitar, which, which, you know, to this day, I really only use as a, as a writing tool. It's, 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 you know, I never, you know, I, by the time this was probably around the time I had already decided that I wanted to be an actor. So I wasn't the guy who went into his room and woodshed and, you know, tried to learn stairway to heaven for hours. You know what I mean? It, it was all about, like let me just um let me just let me just play some 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 changes and 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 try to either learn you know hey jude or 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 write my own stuff so uh, when you have a new song like your excellent um new video dark chocolate eyes what is composition like now as opposed to the earlier works that that you guys have done together as a duo. Obviously it's changed, right? With technology. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, dark chocolate eyes, uh, often, and, and, and this is, this is no exception. You know, I, I like to start with beats, you know, I think very rhythmically. So, um, I think I just found a, a loop and, um, had, some kind of an idea about uh, the, the that that chord progression, uh, and then it just kind of the lyrics and the music sort sort of came together, and I just keep playing the loop and playing the guitar along with it, and then make a demo, and and uh, then you know just it just moves on from there. I send it to Mike. Um, you know, I, I sometimes you make a uh, you make a uh, a demo and and it's it's very much you know a solo kind of process. I mean, a lot of times, and sometimes we bring songs to the band and we kind of work it out. You know, uh, it's as a group, but for the most part, I think that both of us at this point kind of hear arrangements. We hear um, what we think it should be in terms of like uh you know I I instrument choice and tempo and background vocals and all, all that kind of stuff and just try to cobble it sort of together in the case of dark chocolate eyes i mean i right away knew that it was a cello song um and uh so i don't you know i don't have the skill to say the least to um write out those parts or arrange those cello parts so so basically uh in this case i mean correct me if i'm wrong i mean i, I, mean, I wrote the i wrote the I wrote the song, did the demo, 
you know, did the, uh, the, the vocals and then sent it uh, to Mike and said, I want cello. And then he sent me back <laughs> 30 tracks. back, <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and then we start mixing. Does that sound about right, Michael? Did you, are are, are you, is there a profundity of music uh, in, in your head? <laughs> well, the, I, it's interesting. Uh, I was thinking about, you asked about how is, you know, our process or our style changed. What I've noticed, um, in the last couple of years is my brother's writing has become simpler. And um, I think Dark Chocolate Eyes, it's really hard to write a simple song that has that much impact, emotional impact. And that is kind of the key to um, really great songwriting. And I think that when you look at um, Springsteen, James Taylor, uh, well, no, not really James Taylor, because Kevin's sort of, if, if you look at chronology of, of um, Tom Petty t-shirt, my brother wrote, and um, I Feel You, uh, all of a sudden there's sort of a simplicity that is probably the most difficult thing to achieve in songwriting. Because if you go simple, you the danger is you're going to go to mundanity. Is that a word? Mon- be mundane. Oh, absolutely. And, okay. I'll go with it. It is I'll, today. That's right. <laughs> so um, that's, that's been kind of interesting. And I think if I, uh, you know, if I'm self-critical, I think one of the things about being uh, a very highly trained musician is that simplicity is a difficult thing because I tend to go, I like complicated stuff, you know, and if I'm doing my art writing, like my cello concerto, it's really, really, really complicated uh, and difficult to play. And, um, but the gift is where you can find simplicity, meaningful simplicity. And my brother has that. Well, that's an, an important thing because, of course, as as we were talking about earlier, now you can, you know, if you want to make a 96-track song, you can do it on your laptop. You you have this ability to be as profound and fecund, there's another one, right, <laughs> as you want to be and produce as much sound. Uh, being concise is... Uh, Almost a welcome diversion, I, I would argue. Um, you know, uh, since we are a Beatles show, I, I just can't help but ask uh, for your impressions of, um, we were talking about documentary before we started, Michael, of the Get Back Doc. Um, did you fellows happen to watch the uh, eight hours of, of, of footage of the Beatles uh, in that controversial, challenging month of January 1969? I watched every single second of it. And, and I can tell you in no uncertain terms that when, when I heard it was eight hours, I was like, Oh, come on. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, every, I mean, present company excluded. There is a lot of talk about the Beatles. You know what I mean? When you dig into documentaries and, and uh, you know, all podcasts and, shows i mean you know books it's it's just it's just endless which is kind of astounding given that you know there was this you know except for their solo careers it was a pretty short window i mean relatively of of time that they were actually making music but i found the documentary just riveting and um i realized that one of my favorite things i think as a as a musician i mean 
but also just as a as a as a creative person in general, is that you know process is an interesting thing, and a lot of times what people want to show is just kind of shit that I'm not really that interested in, which is you know things of a of a personal nature, you know. And yes, there was a lot of personal stuff that you could kind of read between the lines in terms of watching it. But what was really great for me was just seeing the process of, of them, you know, scribbling out lyrics and, and you know, trying different uh, arrangements and, and tempos and figuring out melodies like in real time. Um, I just, I just, you know, I, 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 I just found that absolutely riveting. How about you, Michael? Uh, did you watch every second? No, I didn't. Um, I, I, I found it riveting, but I also, I think I focused more on the, the personal interactions and, um, they were, they were, to be honest, they were kind of troubling to me. Um, uh, the, it didn't seem like anybody was having any fun. It seemed like, um, a clash of super strong personalities and look, I love the Beatles as much as anybody does, but I think I would just as soon not see that and just live with the the product rather than the process, because some of those interpersonal things were, were difficult. There was a lot, as Kevin just said, that you could read between the lines about, but watching Paul McCartney pick up the violin bass and play it like a guitar as he invents out of thin air, get back. That was pretty pretty amazing, right, Kevin? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I I I, I think that um, I, I agree that certainly there was there was a lot of darkness. There were also some glimmers, uh, you know, quite a few of them actually enjoying. I mean, I guess each, each other. I guess in comparison to uh, you know the original way that that the the footage had been had been you know arranged in the original cut although it's you know i had i saw it when it came out but obviously it's been a really long time since um uh what was the movie called the the original let it be. yeah let it be yeah um you know they were he was you know peter jackson was able to to show some of them sort of having fun but you know it, it, it's i don't know i i just i i, I couldn't turn it off i i i I still I, I still love music and it didn't it didn't ruin it for me. Uh, well, I think it's rock's greatest comeback. You know, they start off dismally and the great ones pull it out in the ninth inning, right? And and at the end of the day, they come up with these incredible songs. They do the rooftop. They record the studio material at the end of the month, and and here's all this great music, which I I guess is uh, another one of those those moments that separate them. We're on the er the verge of another Beatles box set for Revolver. I, I'm thinking <laughs> about the three of us have lived in an age when uh, box sets were something very different when we were much younger, right? When they were, you know, they were the way you'd get the one or two extra tracks you knew were out there. <laughs> um, and yet today there, I, I, in fact, I wrote a few weeks ago in Salon, we're in the great age of the box set. Um, so what's on the, what's on the box set of Revolver? Well, so we'll have uh, a, a new remix by Giles Martin and then also uh, 
more outtakes um, of the songs, sort of showing them developing. Uh, apparently, um, one of the stars of the show is uh, a demo of Yellow Submarine by John Lennon, who often ceded authorship of the song to Paul, of course, uh, for Yellow Submarine. So um, nuggets like that. But uh, what has it been like for you guys to experience this great age of the box set? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't I don't really get them too often. I mean, I, I I don't know. I tend to, you know, just listen to the, the old mixes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm being perfectly honest. How about you, Michael? Yeah, I'm the same way. I, you know, um, I remember when stereo was coming in and we would go in the studio and mix a song and it always sounds so much better in mono. Just, it's more musical. Whereas stereo, they have much more clarity and um, more ear candy possibilities. But to me, it's it's the original piece that went into the public domain that um, for me is not, you know, I don't need to go any deeper than that. It's, to me, that's enough. And that will be one of the, the challenges for future generations is how do they think about all of this new material, the new mixes, the remasters, et cetera, in, in the context of, of availability, right? Um, authorial intention would take us back to those original recordings that they mixed with George Martin, um, and most of which were mixed for mono. Uh, so that will be one of the big questions that folks will have to wrestle with uh, in the future. Yeah, it's a lot of fun seeing because, you know, I started out, my first record was one inch eight track and went from there. And it's really interesting to, to, to watch them try to manipulate, you know, try to work within four tracks uh, and what you have to do to get that much um, content in so few tracks, which is basically bouncing back and forth. And of course, every time you do it in, in real to real tape is it denigrates a little bit, which can be very, very cool too. That's right. It could be an effect you want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I look at revolver and, and I'm curious what you guys think about this um, as that moment of it, the Beatles, just absolute Beatles and George Martin, absolutely exploding the idea of their demographic. You know, they started off with a pretty narrow demographic. And by then with Yellow Submarine and Eleanor Rigby, you're listening to the Beatles if you're four or 84 potentially. Um, And as my students prove every semester, that demographic has held up very, very well as they make this discovery. Um, what was it like to experience that? I'm slightly younger than you, so envious in this way. Uh, could you feel that change occurring in real time with popular music? Um, I would say the. I would say, you know, I, I I don't know if I was old enough to be cognizant of of the whole world of popular music in an analytical kind of way, but Revolver um, it is my favorite, and you know it just was kind of, if I had to pick a favorite, I mean, it was just kind of mind bending, you know, um, in the way that it was changing. And I believe that it was also around the same time that FM radio kind of had its day. And when I remember kind of switching over from AM to FM and then, and, and that was just, 
you know, you got a chance to really just kind of experience all kinds of different sounds that, that weren't all necessarily, you know, guitar, bass, drums and keys, you know what I mean? They were, they were weird and they were, uh, uh, sometimes frightening and, um, you know, druggy and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I, it certainly was, I mean, it's, when you think about it as a, as a, as a, as a piece of music and just about their journey in general, you know, they were such good songwriters that they could have just kept writing straight up, you know, kind of whatever pop love songs, uh, you know, um, sort of generic pop love songs, but, but boy, they really didn't, they didn't think twice. It seems about just making some of the weirdest shit and people just kept digging it. Yeah. And they had no boundaries. Um, speaking of journeys, so you guys are about to hit the road, correct? Well, we've been on the road kind of off and on since April and, uh, we're sort of finishing up this quote, you know, whether it's a tour or not, I don't know. We're not in a bus. We're kind of, you know, grabbing gigs and when we can, and, um, we're on our way down to Texas. Um, uh, Friday we play at green hall, which is the oldest, uh, Texas dance hall. It's, it's a landmark tin shack really. Um, so then we're going to Houston and also to Lubbock. Then we're, we're pretty much done, but I wanted to jump back to one thing about, uh, about, um, revolver Eleanor Rigby with the double quartet. I, I'd never heard anything like that. I don't, you know, maybe there's, were some pop songs that had quartets, but, you know, being a cellist and, being exposed to, you know, art music, you know, my whole childhood, when I heard that, that was just all of a sudden uh, my horizons exploded about what you can do. And there's George Martin, right? Um, Working as composer and arranger behind the scenes. Um, There's something just so remarkable about his capacity for uh, creating sounds, orchestral sounds that felt right at home with what the Beatles were doing. Um, it's such an unusual sync. Do you, do you notice that too, uh, Michael, that so many other times when we listen to folks providing orchestration, it seems like the band and the orchestra exist in different universes. Whereas George would create, it felt like one space. Right. I, you're so right. Just to be a curmudgeon once again is, you know, when I see a rock band and they have an orchestra, it's just, it, it doesn't work at all. It, anyway, the two things aren't integrated. But I think that we have to give George Martin credit for awakening um, the musicianship of the Beatles with his orchestral point of view. And uh, I don't think they would be the same band if they hadn't had his influence. And it's subtle and it's not there all the time, but it must be nice to have a producer where let's try a quartet on this and boom, cranks out a double quartet, uh, and it kills. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life, and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie, Mal Evans. 
The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a one-to-wall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. Everything Fab Four.